Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Nick DeLosso, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Chesapeake. During today's episode, Nick walks us through Chesapeake's journey out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy and describes where the company stands today, how they are addressing investor concerns, and how they have been able to reposition themselves as an oil and gas producer that's fit for purpose in a low-carbon era. He also goes on to talk about the strides that Chesapeake is making as a first mover in the certified natural gas markets, as well as the importance of monitoring industry performance and the key metrics that this performance should be measured against. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Nick. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. Well, good morning. Thanks for, thanks for having me. No, no problem at all. Obviously, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Clearly, we have a huge amount to get through as, as it's been a very eventful 18 months or so for Chesapeake, to say the least. But before we jump into the deep end, let's start on a more lighthearted note. So I'd just like to ask, what is the most bizarre or unexpected experience or encounter that you've had in, in all your time working in the oil and gas industry? It could be in the oil field, in the boardroom, Wall Street, you name it. Well, I, I don't know what could be crazier than negative oil prices, negative $37 oil prices at that. You know, the macro swings that we have in this industry are just wild and they produce unexpected outcomes and really drive for a bunch of interesting dynamics that are hard to predict and sometimes difficult to navigate, always challenging, always interesting. And I don't know what could be more bizarre than the swings that we've had over the last year plus now since the pandemic hit and was the shock to demand. It's been really an unbelievably wild ride. No, absolutely. It really was unprecedented. And I know we're going to come on to to talk about some of these changes and, and volatilities and how the market and you guys in particular are responding to these, these changing dynamics. But before we do, I think it'd be good to get some background on yourself. So I I'm sure you need no introduction to our audience, but I like to start things off on a, on a personal note and, and with a bit of background to set the scene. So just tell us, where did you grow up? What did you study and where? Where did your interest in the energy industry originate? And, and just how did you get into the industry? Just take us through your journey up until joining Chesapeake back in 2008. Uh, sure, happy to. So grew up in Houston. Uh, however, my immediate family was not involved in the oil and gas industry. So really was not on my radar. I went away to school. I went to school in Boston, at Boston College. Lived there for a few years and then was ready to be closer to home. So I went to the University of Texas for graduate school. And that's where I became pretty interested in the oil and gas industry. At the time, of course, the energy trading firms like Enron and Dynegy were dominating the recruiting landscape for MBAs. And so that was my initial focus. And that evaporated, so to speak, almost overnight while I was in school. So the more traditional upstream sector of the industry came into focus for me after graduation. I became an investment banker and really just loved the industry uh, from day one when I got involved. We've lived in Oklahoma City now for almost 13 years. I have three kids, my wife and I, and we love living in Oklahoma City and this has become our own. That's great. Thanks, Nick. And I'm sure people are dying to get an update from, from Chesapeake as well. So maybe we can focus in specifically on, on some of the changes that have taken place with you over the last 18 months or so. I, I mean, I know we last saw you when you participated as a speaker at our New York Energy Capital Assembly at, at the Stock Exchange back in 2019. A lot's changed since then with you having gone through the Chapter 11 bankruptcy process. So can you just tell us how the company looks now compared to back then? Will people recognize Chesapeake today compared to how it used to be? 
just outline the major changes and differences for us, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, it's a great question, and it's one that is pretty fun to talk about in some ways and, and a little painful in others. Going through bankruptcy is an awful experience, and we obviously fought it very hard for this company for a long time. And the outcome has been very, very positive for who are now our shareholders, our creditors, as well as the management of the assets and, and all the rest of our stakeholders, including our employees. The company is in a great position financially. And so what has changed on that front is everything. You know, most notably, our debt balance, if you look at us in 2019, pre-pandemic was $9 billion. Today, it's $1.2 billion. Our interest expense has gone from greater than $700 million to about $60 million. Our gathering and transportation costs have gone from an excess of $6 to below 5 in 2022, and then pro forma for a recent announced acquisition, even lower. So we feel great about how the cost structure has changed. Our GNA has come down materially and is now well below a dollar per barrel. But really, to me, what's more interesting to talk about is what hasn't changed. And we have a great, talented depth of talent here. Our people are strong. Our people are very eager to allow the strengths of this company to shine through to the market. The assets themselves have produced good cash flows for several years, but not enough to cover through the interest expense and the excess gathering costs that we had. And so the underlying business has not been visible to investors in a way that we think will be very attractive and very interesting to investors going forward. Now, in that, we're looking forward to taking those strengths and making it quite a bit better still. There's so much more for us to do without the overhang of a, a bloated balance sheet and a cost structure that causes suboptimal decisions throughout the way you run the business that we're really excited about what the future holds, leveraging the strengths of our people, leveraging the strengths of our assets to go out and create returns for shareholders. So everything has changed. And then in the underlying business, some things that really haven't changed, we think are going to be really much more visible and well-received by the market. Brilliant. Thank, thanks, Nick. And I think you've probably touched on some points I, I want to come to here with my next question and that perhaps revert back to the comments you made in your opening remarks around negative prices and the crazy price environment we've seen over the last year. And I think, obviously, I mean, based on feedback we're receiving from partners across our network, the industry is going through a structural change. Investors are demanding low growth, cash flow, dividend payout type models, more sustainable business models. So I just want to ask, what are the main characteristics of this structural change, in your opinion? And how is Chesapeake positioned now to meet and deliver on those evolving investor expectations? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And it's one we spend a lot of time talking to investors about, talking with our board about. And the best way I think about describing it is that the industry should no longer be positioned to solve the problem of scarcity of supply. Scarcity of supply is no longer the concern of the market for obvious reasons. Both you have significant sources of supply, especially domestically here in the U.S., as well as you have an expectation longer term of uh, demand deterioration. Now, the timing and the magnitude of that demand deterioration is still something that is heavily debated amongst a number of different analysts. And we try to pay attention to a spectrum of views on that point. But either way, it's hard to argue that the industry should be positioned to solve a scarcity of supply problem. It just doesn't exist today. And so what that means is that the industry is evolving and has been really for several years, but the evolution has become immediate and really in a, in a different way demanded by investors post the COVID pandemic than it has before. And it's really about efficiently 
cost-effectively and environmentally responsibly delivering supply to the market, and then doing that in a way that allows for significant cash return. The capital that's been invested in this industry over the last couple of decades is massive, and investors are eager to see that capital now returned in the form of cash flows to shareholders. We think we sit in a great position to do that. We have been a company that has seen billions and billions of of dollars of capital invested in our portfolio of assets and have not been in a position to return cash to equity shareholders. We've paid down a lot of debt. We've paid a lot of interest expense. And so we delivered capital to a portion of our stakeholders over time, but never to equity holders. And we're eager to do that today. So really that's what it's about to me is that structural change of what the goals of the industry are. And, and we think they're clear and we think our company fits really well within that framework. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. It's, it's really interesting to hear. We've had a lot of investors on the podcast who have spoken about these structural changes and what their expectations are, either of their existing portfolio companies or companies that they're looking to invest in. So it's great to hear that from the other side of the spectrum, if you like, from, from the operating side of the industry. So thanks for sharing that. But maybe then before we delve deeper into some of those things you've just spoken about, it, it would be useful if you could give us an update for those who perhaps aren't as familiar with you now as they were a few years ago. So are you able to just update us on your current exposure and portfolio of assets? So how many wells are you operating across what basins? Are you planning to grow in the near to midterm? Um, if so, will you be looking to prioritize these basins you're currently operating in or, or look further afield? And what are your views towards the long-term value of oily, liquids, rich assets vis-a-vis -vis gassy assets? It, it would just be great if you could Share a little bit on that, if, if you don't mind. Sure. So we have a diverse portfolio and we, coming out of bankruptcy, have been uh, obviously pretty focused on our gas assets. You've seen that in our capital allocation. However, our model is going to be about chasing returns. And that's what drove the capital allocation for this year. As we set our budget for the year, oil prices were significantly lower and the return opportunities there were less attractive. We didn't have as much clarity on our cost structure and our oil assets at that point in time as we do today. And so that resulted in a capital allocation that was almost exclusively to our gas assets. Uh, it's been great. Our gas assets have performed extremely well this year, and we've had a great tailwind of a, a summer gas price environment that's been better than we've seen in quite some time. So our return profile looks really strong, and we're going to continue to optimize and maximize our return profile over time. And that has us leaning back towards a little bit more capital next year in our oil assets, particularly our South Texas Eagleford asset, we see the opportunity for pretty outsized rates of return. We'll see how that goes. We're going to continue to evaluate our entire portfolio. And as we spend a little bit more capital on our oil assets, we'll determine pretty quickly whether or not they deserve more capital uh, or if they're not competing. And we'll be very judicious about thinking about what assets we should own. And we don't believe we should own assets that don't garner capital in our portfolio over time. So we're going to try to make those decisions relatively quickly. But we don't have a strategy that says we should go focus on one commodity or the other for the sake of that commodity. We have a strategy that says we should maximize returns across the portfolio of assets that we own. That's really useful. And I think some great context to take the conversation forward. So thanks for that. I think you previously touched on the importance of the responsible production of oil and gas and, and being a responsible producer. And I mean, obviously, the last year has, has really intensified the ESG conversation. And, and there's an increasing focus on the environmental aspect of ESG in particular, as, as oil and gas companies reposition themselves and deliver more sustainable business models, which we've begun to speak about already. 
which are better aligned with the long-term goals of the Paris Agreement and, and able to create value for investors in a low-carbon era. Now, I suppose you could say that the last 18 months have allowed you to wipe the slate clean and, and to start fresh when it comes to approaching these challenges. So the question I'd like to ask you is, from your perspective, what are investors' primary concerns when investing in the US EMP sector? And how are you addressing those concerns? And where's money well spent today to help you to create value over the mid to long term? Sure. Well, I'll go back to what you asked me about what investors' focus are today, investor expectations are with our business and how they've changed. And, and again, the way I describe that is investors have an expectation today that we are efficient, we're cost effective, and then we're environmentally responsible in how we approach the business and deliver supply to the market. And those things have equal weighting at a very minimum, and the environmentally responsible weighting can become outsized and become a non-starter for investors if a company is deemed to be irresponsible. So investor expectations are that we have very clear recognition that the products that we produce have the potential to have a negative impact on the environment. And we have to do everything in our power to produce them responsibly and reduce that impact on the environment every day. We have to have a mindset of continuous improvement. We have to be transparent about what we see in the environmental impact of our hydrocarbons that we produce. And we have to innovate around ways to improve upon that footprint every day. We have to be leaders in this space. My view on this is that the industry and, and our company in particular produces commodities and fuels that the world needs and that make human lives better. But if we can't do that in an environmentally responsible manner, then we'll lose the ability to do that. And that'll be a disservice to the planet. Absolutely. And I think I'm interested in, in one of the things you said there about sort of the commodities, supplying the commodities that the world needs. And I, I think we're seeing more and more of feedback we're receiving is that the end buyer, the consumer of the product has more optionality now as, as alternative energy sources are, are sort of penetrating the market and are becoming more available um, to, to those who are, who are using the energy, buying the power at the end of the day. And I think there seems to be a lot more well, as you've alluded to, focus on the environmental aspect of oil and gas production, being that responsible producer, as, as you've alluded to. And I think sort of some of the conversations we've been having are around the opportunity that the US has to be sort of a best practice oil and gas producer, because this oil and gas isn't going away overnight. Let's be honest, if you stop funding oil and gas, you're not funding an energy transition, you're just funding a supply crisis. And the emphasis, as you say, needs to be on the responsible production of oil and gas. So what opportunity is there, in your opinion, for the US EMP industry, the US oil and gas market, to, to really put itself on, on the front foot? And, and as perhaps that competition for, for supply and demand increases as, as years go on and alternative energy sources penetrate the market, sort of what is the opportunity and how is the US positioned right now to compete against other major oil competing states from the Middle East, say, the likes of Iran, Venezuela as well, and, and sort of be the the supplier of choice for a world that demands a, a cleaner product? I think the opportunity is significant. I think we are well ahead of some of the other international producers in the way that we're thinking about solving these problems. I think we have a corporate culture and an investor base that demands transparency in a way that you do not see from state-owned oil and gas companies outside of the U.S., and so I think the platform from which we can be a world leader as the U.S. oil and gas industry is very real and something that we all need to embrace. You're right that we will see a transition in the way that energy is supplied to the world over a series of years and decades in front of us. But you're also right that hydrocarbons are going to play a big role in that for a period of time. 
we as an industry need to recognize that we are in a transition, that there are going to be other sources of energy that compete for the generation of energy for consumers. And we should embrace that. We should embrace that in every way. We should recognize that there's competition, which means that we need to be more effective in how we produce our hydrocarbons. We need to reduce the environmental footprint so that they are a better source of energy than they might be today. And then we need to also embrace what new opportunities there are going to be that are adjacent to our industry so that we can evolve for our shareholders and still be in a position to create attractive returns to shareholders over time. I don't see a company like ours stepping into a completely new business line overnight. We have the expertise that we have today, and we'll think about how to evolve that as the industry evolves around us. Right now, I see us focusing on being the most responsible hydrocarbon producer that we can be and investing in other technologies adjacent to that to improve upon the potential environmental footprint of it. But over time, over if you want to stretch it out for decades... I do think that the independent oil and gas companies, because we do have a history of being innovative, because we are in the U.S. market that has better capital formation uh, than any other market in the world and has a really better vision about where the world's demand for energy is likely to go, will be positioned to be very meaningful in that evolution over time. I don't see that as as an immediate term event in any way, especially for independents. I think the majors will get there faster. But I think it's something that we'll all be paying attention to and we'll all be understanding what our role is over time and we should be open to it and embrace it. Hey guys, I want to take a short break from the conversation to let you know that Nick will be speaking on the Certified Natural Gas Panel at our North America Energy Capital Assembly in Houston on October the 14th. In addition to the panel discussions and networking opportunities throughout the day, we will be hosting our coveted Lifetime Achievement Awards Dinner, where we will celebrate the careers of John Sellers and Cody Campbell co-CEOs of Double Eagle Development following their most recent sale to Pioneer Natural Resources earlier this year. If you're interested in learning more about how you can participate, including registration, taking a dinner table, and general sponsorship, then please send me an email at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. I want to talk in particular about net zero targets and, and pledges to reduce methane and greenhouse gas emissions intensity. I mean, we speak with management teams on a daily basis, and, and one of the key bits of feedback that we get is, we've set out these net zero aspirations, we know the end goal, but we don't understand what the practical first steps are that we can take to, to set us on our way. So I want to ask, are you able to speak to this? I mean, Chesapeake is the first company to independently certify and continuously monitor its natural gas production across two major shale gas basins under the standards developed by MIQ and Equitable Origin. So what are the practical first steps that you have taken? And are you able to speak to the importance of and and the role of third-party certification? Sure. So the way we think about this is that we need to be, we need to think about it in a timeline of near, mid, and long-term efforts that we will undertake and improvements that we will see. And it will not be linear. The near term, we'll see some pretty significant improvements because we are willing to deploy capital into this space in a way that we haven't been before and set real goals that we know we can achieve some meaningful improvements in the short term. And so we're looking forward to continuing to roll out many of these near term things that we're doing. But like you said, the responsibly sourced gas uh, is a great first step. That's a monitoring that we're doing across our Haynesville and Marcellus positions. It's a real-time monitored measurement of our emissions profile. But it's not just that. It's a, We will have the gas from those basins certified as being responsibly sourced, and that's great. 
but it's really going to be about what we do with the information that comes from that monitoring for continuous improvement. And we're looking forward to seeing some further improvements there. But then in our other assets, we're going to continue to deploy other technologies and to innovate around how we improve our emissions profile across the entire portfolio. We own a lot of oil assets and generally the emissions profile on oil assets is higher than it is on gas assets. And so we're eager to take some pretty good near-term steps there as well to improve upon that. And you know, when we think about, for example, the assets that we bought in 2019, when we bought a company called Wild Horse, those assets had been not managed in the same way that our own portfolio had been from a facility standpoint. And so there's some, still some really obvious things for us to go and do to bring that up to the standards of the rest of our portfolio and then begin to attack the next steps that we'll take across our portfolio to reduce our footprint. There's a lot to do here. It's going to involve some newer technologies. It's going to involve some innovation, but we're really looking forward to continuing to be a leader here. We've gotten out in front on the RSG side for the dry gas assets, but we're looking forward to working on the rest of our portfolio and talking about that further as we get into next year. And it's going to require developing new solutions and partnerships with with other companies, but that will lead to where we go with mid and long-term goals. Again, it won't be linear. So we think the initial improvements are going to be significant. And then we'll work towards the next level improvements that will come from there. I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's there's a lot of work to be done. And, and this is going to require an unprecedented amount of cross-industry collaboration and partnerships to help move the needle. But I, I think historically, people are quick to criticize the EMP industry for being slow to respond to disruptive trends and and changing market conditions like those you've described. But history would suggest that once one actor takes a leap of faith, others are quick to follow. I know players like yourselves and EQT are two of the big names and first names to have committed down this path. And you'll both be joining us, of course, to to speak about this topic in more detail at our North America Energy Capital Assembly in Houston in October, which I'm really looking forward to. But maybe just to set the tone for that, it'd be worth asking, how do you view the potential for the development of a certified natural gas market? I mean, asking questions like, how do you trade it? Can it command a premium? Will it become best practice? What do you do with it? Where is demand coming from for responsibly sourced gas? Is it from investors and users, et cetera, et cetera? There are a lot of, a lot of questions to unpack there, but it'd be good just to pick your brain on that. Yeah, absolutely. So we do think it will become commonplace. We're pleased that we're going to be out front as a leader here, but we expect others to follow quickly. And so, you know, the question about whether or not it will garner a premium price in the marketplace, we're not really sure yet. We are selling a small amount of gas that is coming off of our pilot project that was the monitoring put in place with Project Canary in the Northeast. And the demand has been very encouraging. We have some utilities that are very interested in being out in front here and buying responsibly sourced gas. And the pricing is attractive. But over time, will that become a standard and see a premium? Or, you know, I guess it's a bit of a semantics argument. Will that become the baseline price and then gas that is not certified might get a discount, like you might see a quality discount? You know, I'm not really certain yet, but I do expect that other reasonably sized producers will be taking the same steps to become certified. Uh, And we think that's a great thing. We think it's important that it's not just us, that our peers also uh, provide that level of certification, transparency, insight into what their environmental footprint is, and that we collectively as an industry stand together to say we're going to produce a lower environmental footprint product. 
and we're going to continue to innovate to make it better every day. I think clearly, as you alluded to earlier in the episode, the monitoring and measuring of this performance is going to be so important to actually provide companies with credibility behind the steps that they're taking, both within the market and and with the public and the end buyer. So I guess before we wrap up, I'd just like to get your take on how we should go about measuring and comparing market performance. There are lots of different standards out there. I know you've worked with the likes of Equitable Origin, MIQ, Project Canary. What are the key metrics that performance should be measured against? And would you like to see a standardized approach towards third-party certification? Or is there a benefit to having different parties bring different approaches? Yeah, I think that standardization is always better when you have something like this. And so I think you know, it's relatively nascent to have all of this monitoring and the concept of certification. And I think standards will begin to take hold over time. And you are seeing some entities try to put forth standards that I think will be accepted. We're focused right now on making sure that we're being appropriately rigorous in our approach here. And we see that working with multiple of these agencies has been very helpful on that front. So if you take, for example, the combination of MIQ and EO100, MIQ is recognized as the leader in their emissions monitoring. EO100 has significantly more breadth and they're focused on all aspects of ESG and the amount of information, the breadth of data that we're providing to them to be a part of this certification around our social governance, around the way that we approach our communities and impact all of the stakeholders that we deal with is pretty significant. And we're happy to hold ourselves to that high standard. We think that standard ratchets higher over time and we welcome that. The one thing that I would tell you about this industry at this point is that we all want this to go well. We all want to improve upon how we are approaching our business from an environmental standpoint, from a social governance standpoint. And we talk to our peers about it and we're working together to try to make sure that we are collectively putting forth solutions that are meaningful, that we are in fact improving what we're doing and we're not getting a certificate to hang on the wall for RSG and saying, okay, great, we're done. We're going to take the information that's being monitored here and improve upon our footprint every day. We've already linked in the information from our uh, MIQ EO100 monitoring devices that are in the field into our workflow automation tool that directs our field workers to go and improve on, or, or when we have any, any emissions issues or unexpected events, to go and solve them immediately. So it's already become part of our automated workflow process and our lease operators uh, are uh, notified when there is uh, something that they need to go address. So this is powerful. And we should all be using this in a way that is very intentional about improving the way that we impact the environment, the way that we impact the communities that we interact with. And we should all be looking for higher levels of standards over time. So we like the approach that there's multiple people out here chasing this. We are going to work with all of them to determine what the best ultimate answer is for our company and the best way for us to continue to to improve our footprint. And we think it's going well so far. We think the opportunity really has just begun. We think there's a lot more to do. Absolutely. And and I guess then before we wrap up, I, I do have one more question. How does this tie in with helping the industry to solve scope three emissions? Obviously, I feel that the industry players are starting to get to grips with scope one, scope two. And that's a conversation that many are comfortable having now. But are these standards a good way to identify and monitor scope three emissions and identify areas to be able to improve ratings? And 
who's accountable at the end of the day? Is it the end consumer who's using the product? Is it the supplier who's bringing the product to market? Is it both parties' responsibility to work together to, to find solutions to tackle these problems? I think it's definitely the latter. It's a collective responsibility, and it does begin with measurement. It begins with transparency around what we are doing and what impact it may have. And the more information that we can capture, the better we can be. If we, if we can identify a challenge, then this industry will go out and solve it. These issues matter a lot to the participants in the industry. I think the industry often gets painted with a brush of, you know, we just want to produce and, and don't care. We can tell you that our employee base, and, and I believe most employees in the industry, care about this deeply. We want to produce a cleaner product for the market. This matters to our employees and the innovation that's going to come from it mattering is going to be powerful. We think the innovation will come right out of this industry and out of our consumers collectively, as you know. And again, I think it does begin with the monitoring. It begins with the transparency. And we think that the information as it's shared becomes very powerful to driving innovation. And I know our employees care about this greatly and are really energized by the fact that we're doing this and that we're going to have things that we can set out as goals and challenges that we can rise to. We're excited about it. And we think that there's really a lot of improvement that can be had here to make sure that, again, the products that we deliver to the market every day make people's lives better. They just do. And there are tremendous pockets of the world today that are suffering from energy poverty. They are underserved energy markets. And if we do not find a way to deliver hydrocarbons in a more environmentally responsible manner to all of the communities in the world, then those communities will continue to be underserved and suffer from energy poverty in a way that we think is, is not right. And so we think we have a responsibility to do a better job. And we're looking forward to doing that. Thanks, Nick. I'm, I'm sure that probably opens the door to a thousand more questions, but I'm, I'm mindful of time. So we'll wrap it up there. Nick, it's been great speaking with you, and I really appreciate you sharing your views on and approach towards the industry. I know we've just scratched the surface today, and I'm sure we could talk about many of these topics for, for hours to come, but we'll have to wait until the North America Energy Capital Assembly in Houston in October to, to pick these up again. But for now, I guess to wrap it up, I'll hand it over to you just for some closing comments to summarize what we've spoken about today, to share your views on the next steps for the industry, any partnership opportunities you'd be interested in hearing about, and just to give a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in today. Sure. You know, we're very pleased with where we sit in the market today. We think we have a great future in front of us. We look forward to providing an attractive level of returns to shareholders that we think are going to be industry leading. We've just come out with our details of our dividend policy and how we expect to have our variable dividend. We think we're going to be able to offer shareholders a cash flow return profile that is very, very attractive relative to the peers. So we really are pleased with where we sit and how we've emerged from bankruptcy and what we're able to do for shareholders as a result of that. And then when you bring into the conversation all of the things that we've talked about here today, we're equally as encouraged and excited about what we can do for this industry to be a leader and driving for better outcomes in the way that the world accesses hydrocarbons for energy creation, as well as then delivers and, and uses uh, those hydrocarbons in energy consumption. The partnership opportunities will be many. We look forward to working collaboratively with all of our peers as we've done initially and will expect to continue to do. And we're really looking forward to, to continuing to work through this. We won't do this individually as a company. This is going to be something that we have to embrace as an industry. 
And we're looking forward to doing that and look forward to continuing to build on the relationships we have with our peers and our partners for a better future for this industry. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to speak with Nick about any of the points that he has raised during today's episode, or if you'd be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Chesapeake, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients, to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Nick, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time.